It's a privilege to introduce our scripture reader today, Dorothy Prudich. Dorothy and Daniel and their family have been a part of Bible Center for 21 years, and uh, they've raised their children through much of their childhood here at Bible Center. They're part of uh, the Huffmans and the Johns community group, and they're involved, Dorothy's involved in a lot, involved in Awana, involved in the nursery. They help out with, uh, it used to be discovery groups, and uh, we're bringing them on board more for our membership classes so many of you ladies have told me that you first connected at Bible Center when Dorothy was our women's ministry director and began to study the Bible, and uh, for these years you've been faithful to the Lord. So it's a privilege to have her read the scriptures for us. Good morning. Please turn in your Bibles or your Bible apps to 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. And if you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness that the man but that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work this is the word of the lord you may be seated amen thank you people do strange things in the name of religion let me introduce to you Jedi-ism. Jedi-ism. When I first saw this picture, my first thought was, these guys need something more to do. They need something to do with their time. But there actually is a religion called Jedi-ism. When George Lucas first uh, wrote the scripts to his movies, I can't imagine that he had this in mind. Membership to the Jedi-ism religion, there are membership classes it involves 16 sessions of watching the, the original trilogy straight through over and over again 16 times. People who are part of Jediism believe that the episodes 1, 2, and 3, which came later, are an abomination to their religion, and they refuse to endorse them. If Jediism isn't your thing, then maybe Dudeism is your thing. Uh, it was patterned after the movie, The Big Lebowski, and you can actually believe in the Grand Deuterino and become anointed as a Dudas priest. No joke. There are 150,000 followers of Dudism in the world today, and it continues to grow. The uh, phrase or the motto for Dudism is this. Our motto is, of course, producing more maturing followers of Jesus. Their motto is, just take it easy, man. Just take it easy. Now, we laugh at that. And yesterday, I was appalled to read through all the different religions and, and ways people express their faith in the world. But have you ever stopped to ask yourself, why do we do what we do? Let's call time out for just a minute and think about what we're doing. We come together in a room every Sunday and we read from and hear from an ancient book. 
Most of you, every day that you're home, will read from and think through an ancient book. And then, of course, it's part of our name. We are Bible Center Church. And to people who didn't grow up with that, we might as well be Dudists, or we might as well be Jediists. So why do we believe what we believe? It's healthy for us sometimes to hit pause and ask those questions, and that's what this series is all about. Before we dive in, feel free to take notes along the way. This series will have, hopefully, a number of tools to arm you and equip you in the faith. Uh, Before we dive into our outline, I'd like you to look at the top phrase of your outline in the bulletin or on the app. We have it here on the screens. The Bible, what is it? Well, first of all, it's a collection of God-inspired books. A collection of God-inspired books. Verse 16 says this, All Scripture is breathed out by God. All Scripture is breathed out by God. So the Bible I'm espousing is a collection of God-inspired books. I don't like to say that the Bible is a book. I mean, technically it is. The very name Bible means book. Um, But it's better to say it's a collection of books. If you're talking to your neighbor or an unbelieving friend or family member and just simply say that God wrote the Bible, again, technically that is true. But it's better to be more precise and say the Bible is a collection of books, 66 different books in total, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New They were written over a period of 1,500 years and 40 different authors. And to think that all of that comes together in one cohesive message without contradiction is enough to astound uh, even the most complex of minds. One of the questions I had growing up was, who decided what books made it into the Bible? Ever think about that? Who gets to pick whether or not Matthew, Mark, or Luke got into the Bible. Well, in short, the God led the early church to make that decision about 17, 1800 years ago. You could even argue that from the very beginning, from the time the books were written, uh, the church was deciding, they were looking, examining, testing through the faith to see whether each book was truly part of God's word. 1 Timothy 3.15 says, the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. At Bible Center, we don't believe that the church produced the truth. We don't believe that the church wrote the truth. But simply, the church got to look back at something that God wrote and examine it and see, does this pass the litmus test of what Jesus said when he was here? And so for the first couple hundred, first few hundred years of Christianity, these churches all around Asia Minor and North Africa and the Mediterranean area were examining from what they knew and had heard from Jesus. Now to us, it seems like it was hundreds, and of course it was at least 2,000 years ago or 2,000 years since Jesus lived, but not to them. Many of these people in the early church, if they didn't know Jesus, they knew somebody else who knew Jesus, or they knew somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody who knew Jesus. I like to say that the early church was a lot like West Virginia. Uh, the, the, The family tree doesn't branch much. The early church was very close, very connected. They knew a lot uh, about what Jesus had said and the leaders and the apostles he had appointed. Uh, 
The Old Testament decision for which books went in the Old Testament were easy. If you're taking notes, you can look this up later. But in AD 90, the Council of Jamnia, again, 90 years after the birth of Christ, you have a council already saying, you know what, we know exactly what the Old Testament books were that were inspired. But the historian Josephus, who wasn't a Jesus follower, but he knew much about the life of Jesus, interestingly wrote this. He said the Old Testament books were already determined what was inspired hundreds of years before Jesus. And that's a mistake that's often made when we read our history books today or we watch the History Channel. Somebody will say, well, this was determined at the council. Most of the time it was determined hundreds of years beforehand, but the council was simply a way to codify it. They wrote it down and said, listen, we know this is true. Let's put it in ink and declare it to be so for future generations. How do we decide the New Testament books? Three ways we determine the New Testament books. First of all, was there a Jesus connection? Was there a Jesus connection? So first and foremost, the apostles, many of the apostles, wrote part of the Bible. You have Matthew, you have John, you have Peter, to name three. The Apostle Paul wasn't one of the original 12 apostles, but he became an apostle because Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus, and Jesus trained him for three years in the desert. So Paul wrote much of our New Testament as an apostle, although he wasn't one of the 12 disciples. But there are other books in the Bible written by people who weren't 12 disciples or apostles. For instance, of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Matthew and John were apostles, Mark and Luke were not. So should we throw out Mark and Luke out of our Bibles? Well, the early church didn't think so. You see, Mark is John Mark that we mentioned last Sunday, trained by uh, the apostle Peter, and Peter told him everything he knew about Jesus. So the early church said, there's a Jesus connection. Everything in this book aligns with everything that Jesus taught. And then there's Luke. Luke was trained by the apostle Paul. So the early church looked at the gospel of Luke and said it lines up with everything we know that Jesus taught, and Luke was personally mentored by Paul. This week I was blown away again just to read through the books of Jude and James. What was their Jesus connection? If you look in your New Testament, it's at the very end. What did Jude and James do? Were, were they part of the 12 disciples? I don't believe so although there were others who bore that name. But Jude and James had a very special half-brother. It was Jesus. They grew up with Jesus. They may have bunked with Jesus. And so I would say that's a pretty strong Jesus connection that allowed them and gave them the authority to write the books they wrote in the New Testament. So the first criteria, was there a Jesus connection? The second criteria had more to do with, does it fit with what Jesus taught? There is no single verse in the Bible, there is no doctrine in the Bible that is only taught in one single verse. There is no core doctrine in the Bible that is only taught in one single verse. So as the early church looked at this, is this something that goes along with all the other books that we know Jesus declared to be God's word? Were there other books written around the time of Jesus before or even in the hundreds of years after? Absolutely. If you've ever seen the Da Vinci Code, you hear about some of those books. 
You hear about books like the Gospel of Thomas, books like the Shepherd of Hermes. Now, if you take two books like the Gospel of Thomas and the Shepherd of Hermes, the early church said the Gospel of Thomas does not line up with what Jesus taught. Therefore, we know it can't be inspired. But they looked at the book called The Shepherd of Hermes. You can look it up. It's got some neat stories, some neat content, and just about everything in the book, maybe everything, would line up with what Jesus taught in the rest of the Bible. The problem, the reason we don't have the book called The Shepherd of Hermes is that the writer had no Jesus connection. He wasn't an apostle, and he wasn't trained by an apostle. So it didn't make it into the Bible. The third way we know which books are part of the New Testament has to do with whether or not they were universally accepted. It doesn't mean that every single person in the church agreed, but did most of the churches, when they receive this letter and read this book, think that coincides with what we know about God's revelation? about God's Word. So that's why for hundreds of years, we don't have any particular evidence of all the 66 books in the Bible until about the year 394. Uh, There's the 394, and there was another council in 397 where we find evidence that, hey, these are the 66 books of the Bible. About 30 years prior, there's the remnant of a letter by a guy named Athanasius who wrote a letter and he listed most of the 66 books of the Bible, maybe all 66. And so that's why we see on the History Channel somebody says, well, the Bible wasn't invented until the year 390. That's just not true. There's so much evidence earlier than 390 where we see individual books being accepted in letters and in documents, but we find that eventually all of them were recorded and left to us as part of God's Word. I love the J.I. Packer quote that fits so well with this premise. The church no more gave us the New Testament collection of books than Sir Isaac Newton gave us the force of gravity. God gave us gravity by his work of creation. Similarly, he gave us the New Testament collection of books by inspiring the individual books that make it up. Now in verse 16, we see not only all Scripture But notice what else he says. All scripture is breathed out by God. Maybe you have a translation that says all scripture is inspired by God. That's a good translation. But the word literally means breathed out. It comes from a Greek word for God and breath. The Bible is the breath of God. We say it's inspired, but not in the same way that Homer's Odyssey or Dante's Divine Comedy or Shakespeare's Hamlet was inspired, but it was breathed out as the very words of God. 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21 says, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about with the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The word carried along is the picture of a sailboat. It's the same Greek word. And Paul or Peter writes that men of God were were led along by the Holy Spirit. Did they include their personalities? Absolutely. 
Did they include their culture? Absolutely. You look at the different writers. You've got the Apostle Paul, who was a skilled, uh, he, was, he was a skilled in the arts. He was skilled in grammar. He knew the law. And then you have a guy like Peter. Peter was a fisherman. Uh, Peter was a blue, more of a blue-collar worker. And so when you read in the English or in any language, you see there's a difference in personality. But what these men wrote were the very words of God. Now, that was all introduction, and I promise everything else flies by. But can I encourage you in this? If you still don't believe the Bible is God's inspired word, it is okay, and I am still glad you're here. Can I say that? I I want you to be convinced on your own, to be convinced by what we as Christians uh, refer to as Holy Spirit's guidance. You're in a safe place. Bring your questions. Uh, Bring your what-ifs. If I don't know the answer, I'll find one of our pastors who does. (laughs) But you're in a safe place. And I'm going to ask you in the next few minutes to look with me at the benefits you can draw from the Bible whether you believe it is all God's word or not. I think we can agree on these three things. What does the Bible show us? Number one, the Bible shows us what is sacred. The Bible shows us what is sacred. In verse 14 of the text that Dorothy read, Paul writes to Timothy these words, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. There's our word. The Bible is a collection of God-inspired books that show us, first of all, what is sacred. Timothy learned God's word at the feet of his mother, and his grandmother. I love the picture by Rembrandt that shows Timothy sitting by his grandmother, if you can see it with the lighting. Uh, Here is Timothy learning the Old Testament scriptures. He learned that there's coming a promised Savior. And by the time the Apostle Paul comes to his hometown and he preaches the updated roadmap about how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament, he was ready to believe in Jesus. This is the one mom and grandma have been telling me about. It's why we love children's ministry at Bible Center. We believe that children can believe the gospel. How many of you became a follower of Jesus before the age of 12? Anybody care to raise their hands? I did. Yeah, so many of us, so many of us. And those that didn't, I'm sure you're praying for uh, those who still will. The Apostle Paul loved Timothy. We find that he includes Timothy in a number of his letters. He eventually worked with Timothy. But this particular letter of 2 Timothy was the last inspired letter that Paul ever wrote. And it's kind of like his last will and testament. And he includes Timothy here with the words he wants him to remember. Timothy, do not neglect the sacred writings. God's word shows us what is sacred. You know, I've never met anybody 
in 15 years of pastoral ministry who said they had too much sacred in their life or too much certainty in their life. Here's what I mean. I've met a lot of people that said they had too much church. But I've never met anybody that said, you know, I just feel like my life is too deep. I feel like my life is too meaningful. I just have too much fulfillment in my life. My life just, I understand too many, too many of the mysteries of the universe. Pastor Matt, I really, really wish my life could be more shallow. Nobody ever says that. And so whether you're a new Christian or a veteran Christian or, or somebody who says, you know, I still have questions, let me invite you to read the Bible because it shows us what is sacred, whether you agree with every page or not. The Bible shows us what is sacred, but there's something else the Bible shows us. This may be the most important. It shows us what saves us. The Bible shows us what saves us. In verse 15, And how from a childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, and here it is, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. What is the purpose of the Bible? It's to make us wise unto salvation in Christ Jesus. The purpose of the Bible is to show us the way to God through Jesus Christ. Now, this is an important distinction. There are some who will say, the Bible is just another religious book, like any other religious book. The Quran, the Hindu scriptures, and others. The Bible is just another good book among other books. And I get their meaning. I get their, their intent behind saying that. But actually, it's not true. You see, something can't say one thing about Jesus, and then another document says something completely different, and those two books be in agreement. Andrew Walls is the founder of the Center for the Study of Christianity in the Non-Western World. He's a retired professor at Edinburgh University. Lives, it gives us a powerful insight comparing the Bible to the Koran. We're not picking on just the Koran, but he gives us a great illustration of how the Bible compares to other scriptures. Notice what he says. Christian faith must go on being translated, must continually enter into vernacular culture and interact with it, or it withers and fades. Now leave that on the screen for just a minute. Let's go back. Think about that. The Christian faith, Jesus designed the gospel to go into any culture and to impact that culture without transforming that culture and making it American or making it Jewish or, or making it African. You see, the Bible, you can cut and paste the gospel and drop it into any culture. And that's why it's so important that when missionaries, our missionaries know this, when they go to another country, if they're from Georgia and they're used to big steepled churches and big white columns, it's best that they not go to, say, uh, Zimbabwe and start a church with big white steeple and big white columns. You see, those are more of an, an American expression of church. 
That's why the gospel and the scriptures mention nothing about what musical instruments we can use or what we wear or, or any of the other accoutrements that go along with the gospel. The gospel is intended to reach the culture as the culture is. Now, certainly it doesn't leave the culture where it is, but we don't want to create Americans in Japan. We want to create Christians in Japan. He continues, he says, Islamic absolutes are fixed in a particular language and the conditions of a particular period of human history. The divine word is the Quran, fixed in heaven forever in Arabic, the language of original revelation. For Christians, however, the divine word is translatable, infinitely translatable. And we're going to stop there for just a minute. This stuff gets me excited. If you're not excited, man, just pretend. Uh, this, this, the, Christ, the Bible isn't even written in the original language that Jesus spoke. Jesus probably knew Greek. He would have known how to read the Septuagint. But Jesus spoke in a common trade language, Aramaic. The New Testament, by its very nature, when it was written was written as a translation. And we see the Bible was never intended to stick us in any era of human history. That's why it's so important that we at Bible Center not be a church that's stuck in the 1950s or a church that's stuck in the 1980s. Used to be, that didn't seem like very long ago. It's a long time ago. Or a church that's stuck in the 1990s. Or even a church that's stuck in 2010. But we are to translate the gospel and take it to our culture as the world is. And that's why the greatest missionaries, we look back and... This isn't part of the sermon, this is free. But we, 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 we look back in history... And the greatest missionaries like Hudson Taylor and Adoniram Judson, if you've never heard about them, Google them. These were men and women who would go to China, for instance, and they would dress like the Chinese, and they would grow their hair like the Chinese, and they would live in homes like the Chinese. And they saw thousands of people come to Jesus because they knew it wasn't about their culture from imperial England. It was about an eternal culture, the culture of the gospel, where we will have a people of every kindred, tongue, tribe, and nation gathering in heaven because heaven doesn't all look like us. We'll get through this definition. For Where are we? For Christians, the very word of Christ himself was transmitted infinitely translatable, was translated in a form, the earliest documents we have, a fact surely inseparable from the conviction that in Christ, God's own self was translated, this is so important, into human form. Much misunderstanding between Christians and Muslims has arisen from the assumption that the Quran is for Muslims what the Bible is for Christians. This is so important. I didn't know this till this week. It would be truer to say that the Quran is for Muslims what Christ is 
for Christians. In other words, we are not saved by the Bible. We are saved by Jesus Christ. The eternal word of God that we hold in our hands only points us to the eternal word of God named Jesus Christ. I was running with a friend yesterday, and I said, I I hesitate even saying this. He said, say it. So I'll, I'll say it, and if it goes over flat, I'll blame him. The Bible, believing the Bible, now before you throw me out, believing the Bible is not enough to get you to heaven. America is filled with people who would say, I believe the Bible. The only way you get to heaven is by believing in Jesus Christ. And as Jesus walked the earth, he met tons of people who believed the Bible. John chapter 5 and verses 39 and 40, Jesus said, he's, he's indicting the Pharisees, the religious leaders. He says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think in them you have eternal life. But these are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. People were saved for hundreds of years before the all 66 books of the Bible were completed. Think about the people who were saved when Jesus walked the earth. That none of the New Testament had yet been written. But yet they became followers of Jesus. And this morning, you can become a follower of Jesus even if you don't understand everything there is to understand about the Bible. The gospel is the good news that the living God, who demands perfection of all humankind, sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to live a sinless life, to suffer and die on the cross as a substitute for our sins, absorbing the judgment we rightfully deserve, to rise again, to ascend back into heaven, and to grant forgiveness and righteousness and His Spirit and eternal life the moment anyone repents and believes. If you hear nothing else in this sermon, hear John 3.16. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, That whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. If we start there, we can spend the next 30 years together studying the Bible and mining its riches and learning the ins and outs of why God says it's true. The Bible shows us what's sacred It's a collection of inspired books that show us what saves us. But lastly, in number three, the Bible is a collection of inspired books that show us what makes makes us strong. The Bible shows us what makes us strong. Verses 16 and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God. We believe that. Christians, inspired word of God. But, but it's also profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The word profitable, remember the last four weeks we've talked about Onesimus, his word means useful, his name means beneficial. It's the same derivative word. It means the Bible is useful, the Bible is beneficial. If you're taking notes, you can notice those four words, teaching, reproof, correction, and training in verse 16. 
Teaching is what is right. Reproof is what is not right. Correction is how to make it right. And training is how to keep it right. Teaching is what is right. Reproof is what is not right. Correction is how to make it right. And training is how to keep it right. The bottom line of verses 16 and 17 is the Bible will make you stronger the more time you spend in it. And he goes on to tell us how that's so in verse 17, that the the man of God or the, the person of God may be competent. The word competent there means complete. Competent, equipped for every good work. Now, verse 17, the best way to illustrate verse 17 between complete and equipped is the use of a, the picture of uh, the Gladiator movie. How many of you have seen Russell Crowe's Gladiator? All right, yeah, I was thinking of that this week. So on the outside, he's got his gear. He's got a sword, he's got a shield, he's got his armor, and as the movie goes on, he gets more and more armor, uh, more complex armor. So, but underneath that armor, you've got a guy that's you know, somewhat in shape. Now, you know, you know, guys, we know he's not as in shape as most of us are, and, and the ladies sitting around us would have testified to that. But still, he's, he's in decent shape, you know, probably, for that movie. So the idea of being complete refers to what Russell Crowe would be as in shape. He's fit. He's strong. But the last part of verse 17 that says equipped for every good work would refer to his gear. So it's important that a gladiator not only be fit and strong, but he have the right gear. What would happen if, if a gladiator had all the right gear, but he was a wimp? Well, it doesn't matter if he can't pick up the sword, he can never use the sword, right? Or what if the gladiator was perfectly fit, but he had no weapon? Unless he's Jason Bourne, he's going to die in the first 60 seconds, right? So both are important. The illustration carries over to running. Um, trying to get back. I'm part of a man-up group. If you ever want to go run, you're a dude. Join us on uh, 5 o'clock at the YWC every Monday. We go run about five or six miles and discuss a book that we're reading. Uh, but running, think about marathon runners here in this picture. So you've got runners who, who are trained, they're physically fit on the inside, but they also have to have the right gear. Now, some of us, I'm back to training, and I'm learning that you can have all the right gear. i got a new watch, I got a new uh, Garmin watch so I know where I'm going and how slow I'm going. But yesterday I ran 14 miles. And I was all excited, man. I got me a new watch. I told you about my new socks. I've got, you know, I got the, the pants and the shirt. I was pretty excited about it. I was ready to go. But after 14 miles last night, before I go to bed, after finishing up the message, I realized my knees really, really hurt. I might have all the right gear, but am I ready for 14 miles? And you see, God's word reminds us that both are important. To be the person, to be a strong person, but also to be equipped for every good work and deed in life. Here's my main encouragement. No matter where you are on your Christian journey, simply this. Try reading your Bible every day this summer and see what God does in your life. Try reading your Bible every day this summer and see what God does in your life. You know, it occurred to me this week, studying for this message, that it's very easy for the Bible to be like a textbook. 
pastors who study for messages, you're in the Word 10, 12, 20 hours during the week. But it also occurred to me that here lately, my devotional life, just opening up the Bible and reading it, really stinks. And so I'm going to ask you as a church to go on a journey with me. I put a 60-day reading plan. You don't have to do all 60 days, but I put it on my Facebook yesterday, my Twitter, my Instagram. Feel free to check those, any one of those three out. If you don't have any of those, let me know. We'll have my assistant print it off for you. But a, a summer reading plan, what would it look like when we go on vacation this summer to take some time to read the Bible? What would it look like for our students, for you who maybe are in elementary school or middle school or high school or college? You've got a break to read the Bible 10, 15 minutes every day. What would it look like for us at work? I know we're busy. We're all busy. Take a few minutes and just some quiet time and, and read the Bible. Maybe you're going through some suffering. This is a really bad season of life for you. Try reading the Bible every day and see what God does in your life. Maybe you've got a decision to make this week and you're just not sure what. Try reading the Bible every day and see what God does in your life. I invite you to go on this journey with me. And may God help us to be the best summer of our spiritual walk. Will you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for brothers and sisters who can journey through life with me. I pray first for those who today have seen that salvation comes through Jesus and not through believing or understanding every nook and cranny of the Bible. I pray you would help them to believe in Jesus with heads bowed and eyes closed. If today you say, you know, I want to put my faith in Christ. I believe the claims of Christ. I may not understand it, but I want Jesus to be my master and my savior. I believe he died on the cross for me. I believe he rose again the third day. I don't understand it, but I believe it. Let me invite you right where you sit to call in the name of the Lord. The Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I'm going to pray a prayer. Let me invite you to pray this prayer with me. Dear Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I know I can't save myself. But I believe you love me. And I believe you want me to be strong. I believe you want me to be saved. And I ask you now, to forgive my sins and make me a Christian. With heads bowed and eyes closed, if today in your heart, in your heart of hearts, if you prayed and asked Christ to be your Savior, would you just let me know some way? Drop me a note this week. I'll be out here by the fireplace, by the doors. We'll have a pastor here at the front. Just stop by and say, Pastor Matt, I prayed that prayer. And we'll follow up with you this week. We'd love to help you on your journey. Christian, how's your Bible reading? We're going to talk about meditation and study and interpretation all for the next seven weeks. But how's your Bible reading? May God help us to make this a summer where we, we try to read the Bible every day. In the next minute, let me invite you to ask the Lord to help you make that so. Figure out when that would be in your day. And let's ask God to help us this to be the best summer yet.
of our spiritual journey.